for example, in um, Aboriginal Australians, we find that you know they still have microbes in their mouths that correlate to dietary practice, traditional dietary practices. So for example, we find endomicrobium, which is a microbe that otherwise has pretty much only been found in termite guts and other insect guts. Um, and it's only present in Aboriginal Australians who live in the central desert. And so you know there's a very classic dietary practice there to eat termites in the central desert because they're a great source of protein, right? And we actually see the microbes from those termites um, end up in a sort of co-evolutionary relationship with Aboriginal Australians later on. Now, that might be a really great adaptive strategy, right? If you've got microbes that can, in termites anyway, help digest cellulose and really obtain more nutrients out of very nutrient poor sources like wood, right? Those might be adaptive, really beneficial microbes to have if you're living in an area that at times of the year, you know, can be very sort of limited in its nutrient resources. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by chlorella and spirulina algae from Energy Bits. Now, if you haven't heard my podcast episode detailing the benefits of chlorella and spirulina, here are some quick facts about their health benefits. First, they help build the immune system to support B and T cell production. They also provide essential micronutrients, which we probably don't get enough of in our diet due to ultra-processed food intake and nutrient-depleted soils. They also aid in energy production and help support detoxification pathways in the liver. I use algae essentially as a sort of multivitamin since it contains quite a bit of B vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin K, iron, amino acids, essential fatty acids, and chlorophyll. You can choose to blend them in smoothies, use as toppings on salads, or take them as pills for anyone who can't stomach the strong taste of algae. Why do I like energy bits specifically? Well, for starters, they're third-party lab tested in the USA at an FDA-approved lab to make sure the products actually are what they say they are. They test for nutrients, safety, and purity, as well as for heavy metals such as lead and mercury, and neurotoxins, so you can be sure you're getting a safe and pure product. If you want to give chlorella and spirulina a try, EnergyBits is providing a generous 20% discount code using code LIVEDAMNWELL. Hope you check them out. Now, back to the show. Today on the podcast, I have Dr. Laura Weirich, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Penn State University. She received her Bachelor's of Science from South Dakota State University in Applied and Industrial Microbiology and received her PhD in Biochemistry, Microbiology, Bioethics, and Molecular Biology from Penn State. Thank you very much for joining me today. <laughs> Thanks. Glad to be here. So I thought we'd start off by you briefly sharing your area of expertise. What do you study? 
I use a wide range of tools, anything from ancient DNA through to, um, gosh, in vitro systems and ethical um, research, ethical approaches research to reconstruct the microorganisms that live within our body and understand how they relate to changes in our lifestyle, like changes in our diet or our daily practices or our environments. Um, and really we're trying to understand how that relates to health and disease. And how can that work? Uh, because I've seen some popular news articles that have focused on your work and they focused on um, other, um, you know, anthropologists, archaeologists and work like that. And they try to make some kind of big conclusion. And oftentimes even the researchers themselves, you know, that the, that the article is based off of don't agree with the conclusion that the popular science article made. Um, and so how do you think that your work can help us answer the question of what humans evolved to eat. It's like a really huge dogmatic topic, but how does that fit in? Yeah, it's it's a really huge topic um, and one that we're still even struggling to develop the right tools in order to, to answer today um, using archaeology approaches. And so um, my research has used what is called calcified dental plaque or dental calculus to really look at what was between the teeth of our ancestors, right? Um, and so that plaque is predominantly or calcified dental plaque, which we call calculus, um, not math. This is sort of archaeology, so dental calculus. Um, that calculus has mostly microorganisms present inside of it. And so, you know, probably greater than 95% of the DNA that we can examine inside of that comes from microbes. Um, but a small proportion of it, and that's less than 5%, um, even on a good day, comes from the food that gets stuck between our teeth. And so we can use new methods to try to go in and interrogate, you know, what was that food? Can we try to identify what it was? Um, and, you know, what does that tell us about how humans were living in the past and, you know, what their health might have been consequentially? And what are some of your most recent findings or any of the most like shocking findings that you've had with that? Yeah, um, a lot of our findings have been that, you know, health has directly changed when humans have changed their diet, right? Um, and so we have evidence to suggest that, you know, when people go through these very large cultural evolutions, which is often associated with a dietary revolution, right, that the microbes in people's body change, and that that then causes subsequent health changes. So, um, for example, we have evidence to suggest that when people move from foraging and gathering most of their food into an agricultural-based lifestyle, when they're, you know, really farming most of their food and eating probably higher amounts of grains or carbohydrates than they would have before, we have evidence that that has sort of changed the microbes present in the body. Um, and that that really sparks this whole sort of revolution in our bodies that, that really leads to many of the modern diseases that we have today. Now, the industrial revolution and other big revolution in our diets um, and our, our lives, you know, continues to change that. And even hygiene and dietary practices post-World War II probably change that again even further, right? Um, but really all of these different processes and changes in our diet and lifestyle lead up to the diseases that we have today, including a lot of chronic non-communicable diseases that we have. So that, that's a huge topic that you just touched on, the industrial revolution, our agricultural revolution, sorry, um, in the ancestral health space, kind of, because it's kind of seen as like, that was the point when uh, human health and uh, disease kind of, it changed, right? We had more diseases that came about and there's even some arguments and I couldn't get clear answers from some of the other guests that I had um, that, you know, things like our, our jaws were shrinking, um, things like even like the density of our skulls were kind of getting smaller. So do you kind of see agriculture as necessarily something that was negative for our health? 
Yeah, I, we we certainly do um, in a way. You know, it's it's positive and negative though, right? Like we ended up with so many other societal benefits from being able to do agriculture that we wouldn't right. be where we are today without it, right? Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, our health probably likely suffered. We went from a you know probably um, not quite as a diverse diet, but I think I think the the transition too between like foraging and agriculture, it's usually seen as a black and white transition. Like one day people are out foraging food and the next day they're growing, you know, <laughs> wheat. Um, and it's probably much more of a, of a longer transition, right? It's, it's more likely that people are adding agriculture into their gathering practices, right? And that this is, you know, sort of a slow approach, but, but what we generally think we see is a decrease in diversity probably of, of dietary food sources um, at certain times of the year, and and really that that probably then leads to negative health um, outcomes. And and one of the classic ones that gets discussed in my field a lot is anemia. Right, people are probably eating less meat, and so we probably don't have as much iron in our diets. And um, you know, as such, or maybe even leafy greens. Right, <laughs> so as such, you know, we we sort of um, result in higher levels of of anemia. Now, there's been conflicting research in that space. There's some people that say that we don't necessarily have increased anemia, but there's other ones to suggest that we do. But certainly in my work, um, we know that the microbes that are more typically associated with oral diseases today, we know that after the agricultural revolution, at least in Europeans, they start to increase um, in their abundance. And, and um, we even know through some other teams research, right, that some of those microbes even become more adapted to sort of carbohydrates, right? <laughs> they, they like eating more carbs and they can, um, you know, they can uh, sort of survive better in that space. We also know that some of these potential pathogens um, that like eating carbohydrates, you know, start to be able to, for example, in our mouth, produce more acid, which means they can produce more cavities and caries, right? Um, we can sort of see genetic evidence for this, this adaptation to um, eat more carbohydrates, but also, you know, produce more acid. And so, so for us, we think this, you know, adaptation um, or even adoption of agriculture, right, um, probably isn't one that's necessarily beneficial for our health, but in the same coin, you know, we wouldn't be here today if we hadn't figured out a way to, to start farming food, right? We wouldn't be able to support the people that we currently have on the planet. Right, right, of course. So it's a huge question, obviously, but it's the question that I, the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast from your work and kind of supplemented by the work of other anthropologists or archaeologists, what are some of the foods that humans evolved to eat? And is that even like a question that that makes sense in a way, because uh, there's been some arguments that I've heard where, you know, that's what we ate thousands of years ago, but it is actually relevant to our physiology today. How can we help kind of uh, answer that? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, what are, what are we adapted to best eat? And I think, um, you know, if you're of European descent and, um, you know, you <laughs> are living in an industrialized country today, um, with that descendants, you know, you probably are sort of more adapted to eating this carbohydrate you know, rich diet. Whereas, you know, if we were to ask questions about whether or not people living in Europe 30 or 40,000 years ago were adapted to eating those carbohydrates, it's absolutely not, right? They're probably much more adapted to a very diverse range of food sources, which again, are, are collected and eaten not on the same schedules that we eat on today, right? <laughs> you know, um, and so even the timing of that, that consumption can also sort of change um, what we see in the body. So, um, you know, if you want to talk about sort of paleolithic diets or, you know, the big fad recently was like the paleo diet, right? You know, let's go back to eating what our, what our um, paleolithic ancestors ate. You know, those diets are really focused on meats and vegetables. And, you know, that's probably very true, but that's also probably very different, world's different from what we probably saw people eating 30 or 40,000 years ago, right? That was probably a very opportunistic diet. It was something, you know, that would be associated with 
the weather and the current environment in which you're in. So, you know, if you're in a forested region, you're going to eat very different things than if you're on a savanna, right? And you're, um, you know, able to hunt much larger game. So, you know, your, your diet is going to be very tied to your environment. Um, and in fact, you know, this is what we see in indigenous populations today, right? Like you're going to be eating things that are around you. Um, and not necessarily going to a grocery store and eating all of these fruits and vegetables, right, which were domesticated in the last, you know, several thousand years, which didn't, in many cases, exist in their current form in the past, right. Um, and that also, you know, is, again, a very small range, like most people eat on average 30 different, less than 30 different, you know, plants each week, right, if you're eating more than 30, you're doing really, really great, um, you know, so it's, it's a very different diet today, even if you were still eating a paleo diet, then you would have been eating you know, 30 or 40,000 years ago. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's something that I've heard from pretty much all of my guests. I had Dr. Bill Schindler on the podcast. I had Dr. Peter Ungar on the podcast. I had Dr. Mickey Bendor on the podcast recently, and they all seem to kind of say very similar things. Um, what made us human was our ability to adapt to different kinds of foods, depending on our environment. Um, and that's kind of like the hallmark of humanity, basically. Absolutely. I a thousand percent agree with that, right? We were able to shift and to adapt and to innovate, right? And that's that's really what makes us successful. You know, if something, some food goes away, we can we can move to a new location and find different foods, or we were able to, you know, think about processing or preparing foods in new ways, right? That makes food more accessible. Like we are very adaptable, if not, you know, anything else. So, you know, the paleo diet has many different manifestations, but it is typically, like you said, you know, sort of meat and potatoes. And um, you know, it can be likened to sort of these, these keto-based diets, right, where you're reducing the amount of carbohydrates that you're taking into your body. Um, or if you are going to have carbohydrates, you might eat very complex carbohydrates, right, with tons of fiber in them. Um, you know, again, this is meant to be, you know, similar to what our ancestors had in the past, but even if we were to, you know, use the current data that we have, it would, it's not similar at all, right? In fact, even if we were to look at Indigenous people living today, it's also very much, you know, not similar um, to what we're eating. For example, you know, indigenous people living today eat up to 10 times and even some cultures 30 times more fiber than the average American eats, right? And so, you know, even these sort of um, more opportunistic or, or forage diets today are very different from what we'd see in a, in a paleo diet, even considering, you know, everything modern, right? right. So, um, so yeah, it's just, it's not comparable, I think, to what our ancestors were doing or even what people are doing with traditional lifestyles today. Um, they're just very, very different. I don't know if that answers right. your question. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. I think the, the question that I really wanted to ask was, why is there such a big focus on the paleo diet? Like, why is that the one piece of our, um, like evolutionary history that we're kind of using as that's what we should be eating? That's what we're adapted to eating. Why is that? Yeah, I, I think that comes from from this um, supposition, you know, that the Neolithic revolution, the agricultural revolution was bad for us, right? And so, like, if agriculture is bad for us, let's get rid of it, right? Let's go back to a non-agricultural based diet. And I think, I think that's the, the supposition with the paleo diet, right? Like, let's get rid of agriculture, um, ignoring the fact that all of the fruits and veggies that you're eating still come from agriculture, right? <laughs> Which is like the, that's the sort of, I think, um, missing link in the logic there. So, you know, people really want to focus on this because it, it supposedly, um, and I think, you know, there's, there is research coming out on this, but I think, you know, we're still a ways away from really understanding this, um, is that it shifts the body and its metabolism in, in different ways, right? If you don't have carbohydrates, you're going to start burning fats in different ways. And so, um, you know, there's people, like I said before, like experimenting with the keto diet, right? And trying to sort of get into ketosis where their body, um, you know, it's just, is functioning different. And, and there's lots of purported health benefits from that. I don't know how much of those have been actually verified, um, you know, 
And, and this also goes along too with fasting, right? You know, and putting um, food in your body at different times of day. And, you know, from my field of study, we know that each of these different diets can influence the type of microbes that are in your body as well. And so, you know, there can actually be links to health, but we don't quite understand what those mechanisms are or how that necessarily occurs, right? Um, you know, we know that fasting will change your gut microbiome and your oral microbiome, right? But what exact health benefits does that impart? You know, the, the jury, I would say, is still out. Um, very possible that it's there. We just don't quite understand it from a scientific standpoint. Right. Yeah. So I guess what is the time periods that we should be looking at in order to try to, um, I guess, most make the most sense of like the foods that we should be eating today or inform the kind of foods that we're most adapted to eating? <laughs> yeah, um, strangely enough, I think that we should go back to a, a true Paleolithic <laughs> diet, right? Um, you know, if we if we look at individuals from that era, you know, Neanderthals included, um, gosh, at least from our research, their health is just incredible, right? If you look at a Neanderthal's mouth, um, their oral health is absolutely incredible. Um, I always tell people I wish I had teeth like a Neanderthal, right? Okay, so they have, you know, very low incidences of caries, very low incidences of oral disease. Um, and in general, you know, just really great oral health, right? Whereas today we have to brush our teeth twice a day to keep from getting caries and cavities, right? Um, you know, if we were wolves living out in the environment and we were losing all of our teeth, you know, we, we wouldn't survive anymore, right? But because we've adapted and, you know, come up with modern hygiene practices, we can still survive. So I think that if we really wanna think about health and we really wanna think about where we should be, um, you know, focusing our attention and, and trying to get dietary um, resources from would be to focus on a sort of true paleolithic diet. Um, but again, this is going to be one that A is sort of foraged. And so it's a lot of, a lot of um, foods that are not necessarily domesticated, right? And it doesn't mean that these can be produced on large scale. It means they probably can't, right? Which um, can lead to, you know, food inequities and all sorts of things, right, in populations. So um, kind of putting aside some of the ethical issues that would go along with this. But but certainly having diverse ranges of, of plants and greens and, you know, things that are are, are non-domesticated for their size, but more um, sort of thought of from a nutrient perspective, right? Those are gonna be what we're gonna go after. Um, you know, we would also probably be eating things like insects and, you know, all sorts of weird and wild things that we just totally don't even consider today, um, but would have been really, you know, rich in nutrients um, in, other, in other days or even, even in other societies today, right? Things like termites right. and are, they're still eaten in some cultures, right? Because they are great sources of protein, great sources of nitrogen, right? Um, and we simply just don't eat them in, in the same way. And so, you know, there's quite a few researchers as well that are looking to a lot of these traditional lifestyles and, and their diets, right, to, to revisit maybe what we should be eating. So, you know, maybe it's not Paleolithic, maybe it's not 40,000 years ago, but what it probably is, is learning from indigenous communities today, you know, what's a healthy diet? Um, because we've lost that information in the sort of the agricultural, industrial, um, you know, part of the world. From the research that you've done on, um bacteria on dental calculus, um, what, what does that kind of point to in terms of um, one, like the foods that we ate, like, and is it even possible to say like the proportion of like plants to animal foods that we ate? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's something we've been actively working on um, as far as, you know, is a plant-based diet more important or is an animal-based diet more important? Um, and from an ancient perspective, it's been really hard to try to get at that question. Um, you know, we've been using a mix of isotopes. So looking at how much carbon versus nitrogen, you know, is present in your bones, which can be a good indicator of how much meat you were eating, for example. And we've been trying to compare that to the sorts of microbes that we see in the body. 
And so far we, we um, are having a really hard time telling whether or not there's a really good, you know, solid relationship there. I think um, where it becomes more interesting is actually looking in people living today, right? To understand whether or not people who have been living as vegans for a long time, you know, have much more diverse gut microbiomes, for example, um, or whether or not they're producing really good metabolites that we know can support health and, and brain function, right? Um, and in that context, we know that more plants is generally better, right? Um, more plants generally means a more diverse microbiome, right? Um, and so, you know, again, the magic number is kind of 30 plants. If you're eating more than 30 plants, you know, your microbiome is kind of in its own category by itself. Um, whereas if you're eating, um, you know, more meat, you're gonna see less plants and, you know, you're probably not as likely to fit on that scale, though you might still. Um, and what becomes even important from the meat side is, is the quality of your meat, right? And so the metabolites that are produced by microbes um, from sort of their digestion of the things that we eat, um, you know, actually really matters. And so grass-fed beef, for example, um, you know, is associated with metabolites that might be correlated to better health. Again, it's still active areas of research. And so we're still, you know, looking at these sort of things, but, but um, certainly it looks like, you know, going back away from the sort of industrialized agriculture might mean um, better health for us. And have you found like completely different, um, like bacteria on the teeth from different individuals that you test? Yeah, so we, um, we find different microbes on the teeth of ancestors from all over different parts of the world. For example, um, people in Europe uh, actually look more similar to ancestors in many industrialized countries today, which makes a lot of sense, right? Um, if we think of back to the colonial period, um, Europeans are, are leaving you know, Europe and, and colonizing elsewhere in the world um, and forcing change upon people who live in those areas. So they're not only bringing their microbes to other parts of the world, but they're also imparting a diet and a culture that's going to continue to support those European microbes and potentially exclude ones that might have been in the bodies of people there before. And so our research is really focusing a lot on these, these differences across populations prior to the colonial era. Um, you know, so what did what did microbes and people in the bodies in South America versus Europe versus Asia versus Australia, you know, look like prior to um, the colonial era, right? And prior to Europeans sort of wreaking havoc on the whole world, right? So, um, and in fact, there are really interesting, really distinct differences, you know? For example, in um, Aboriginal Australians, we find that, you know, they still have microbes in their mouths that correlate to dietary practice, traditional dietary practices. So for example, we find endomicrobium, which is a microbe that otherwise has pretty much only been found in termite guts and other insect guts. Um, and it's only present in Aboriginal Australians who live in the central desert. And so, you know, there's a very classic dietary practice there to eat termites in the central desert because they're a great source of protein, right? And we actually see the microbes from those termites um, end up in a sort of co-evolutionary relationship with Aboriginal Australians later on. Now, that might be a really great adaptive strategy, right? If you've got microbes that can, in termites anyway, help digest cellulose and really obtain more nutrients out of very nutrient poor sources like wood, right? Those might be adaptive, really beneficial microbes to have if you're living in an area that at times of the year, you know, can be very sort of limited in its nutrient resources. But if you are someone who lives in an industrialization, um, you know, industrialized setting, right? And you have, you know, ample amount of food resources, that microbe may be a maladaptation, right? It might actually be, be necessarily, um, it could be bad for you, right? Not necessarily good. And so, so these microbes that, that were in populations prior to the colonial era might be really, really important for underpinning health today and underpinning, um, you know, what a lot of these um, chronic non-communal diseases associated with diet, you know, really are in, in people living today. 
Um, so in fact, you know, in Aboriginal Australians, we see that many of these, these chronic diseases are up to five times higher, you know, and, and is it related to some of these microbes that may be associated with that traditional lifestyle and that traditional diet, um, you know, and, and that's, that's not a fault of the microbes, it's not a fault of the traditional diet, right? It's a fault of, of the industrialization coming in and, and changing that diet. So um, we've got a lot of work to do, but absolutely populations around the world prior to the colonial era were all distinct. They were um, unique. Um, and in fact, you know, we can even sort of um, estimate where someone is from based on their microbes. And so it's not only the collection of microbes that you have in your mouth, but each of those microbes also has their own evolutionary history. And if they were given from your grandmother to your mom to you, for example, um, then, you know, they're also going to share this hereditary signal. So we can even potentially track back, you know, where people have come from based on these sort of microbes that live in our mouths. So they're, yeah. they're completely unique and distinct depending on where you are in the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the microbiome is a really fascinating topic. And I think it's, uh, I mean, we're only beginning to learn now just so much about it. And I, I, it's interesting. I wanted to get your perspective to see if you agree or disagree, but it seems like right now there's kind of a, like there was a shift towards more plant-based diets for feeding kind of the, the microbiome and making it more diverse, but there's kind of like a pushback, which is like, we don't really know if a certain type of microbiome, certain species, certain abundance is actually related to the health benefits. Like we don't know first the directionality and we also don't know, is it context dependent? Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge million dollar question in our field. What is a healthy microbiome, right? Because yeah. health looks very different across different people, even within a population, but it gets even crazier when you start looking at across populations, right? What is a healthy microbiome? That's a huge problem for the field. And I think even if we're thinking about repairing microbiomes or, or treating disease by altering a microbiome, we have to be very careful about how we alter the microbiome, right? Because altering it in one way for one person might result in health, but altering it in one way for another person might even be detrimental or even dangerous, right? Probably not, probably the body's gonna recorrect itself, but you know, we, have to, we have to consider these things as scientists when we're trying to figure this out. Um, and so from our perspective, it has been to survey diverse um, groups, right? So to look at a wide range of populations with people with different genetic backgrounds, different lifestyles, different histories, and really try to characterize what does health look like? And are there signatures across people who live you know, very different lifestyles, very different diets? Um, are there signatures that are maintained across all of those people? Um, and the answer is, yeah, there's a couple, but it's not, um, you know, it's not 95%, right? It's not that it's an obvious answer, right? And so it might be that we actually need to tailor you know, microbiomes, if we're thinking about treatment and thinking about disease, we might need to be able to tailor or to engineer microbiomes in order to best treat specific diseases. Um, you know, and when I'm saying like more diverse is better in general, you know, that's true in the gut, but it's, for example, in the mouth, not necessarily true. In fact, we see people that have periodontal disease actually have more diverse microbiomes than people who don't, right? And so it could actually be the opposite trend. Um, so it is really site dependent. It's really disease dependent. Um, but in general, diversity is a good thing. Like we know that people, um, you know, um, who, for example, age and have some health issues, we know their diversity declines in their gut microbiome. Um, we know that's also true in the mouth, you know. So in, in general, um, you know, we would like to, to see more diversity, but, you know, it's not always a good thing. That's a really right. great point. Right. Um, we mentioned a few, you mentioned a few pieces of evidence for um, kind of like the true paleo diet, um, bacteria on the dental calculus, um, you mentioned carbon um, and nitrogen isotopes, um, but there are a few others. Um, what do you think, obviously all of them kind of fit together to kind of fit into a puzzle piece, but which ones are the ones that are for you either the most surprising, which ones are kind of like um, 
conflict with your own uh, hypotheses and which ones do you think kind of like have more weight to them? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good um, question. And so, you know, there's, there are lots of methods and, you know, doing, looking at ancient DNA and dental calculus is one method. You could also look at the proteins that are preserved in dental calculus as a second method. Um, I think there's some really promising proteomics or protein-based work that's coming out of dental calculus that's really able to identify, you know, for example, what types of milk people are drinking, you know, when we move into agricultural-based eras. But when we move further back into the past, like in the Paleolithic, it makes it a little more difficult um, to try to identify some of these things. Um, we are using isotopes, but you know, again, isotopes is a very bulk signal, right? So it's going to tell more, um, you know, were they eating more or less meat, but not necessarily what species, right? And so it might be good to actually pair some of these methods together, right? So is this individual eating more meat? And then can we use a DNA or a you know protein-based approach to try to get in and figure out maybe can we identify what species? Um, we're still a long ways away though from using DNA-based ancient DNA methods, I think to really get a lot of specific dietary species. We've done a little bit of this in the past, but to be honest, it's horribly um, problematic. Our, few, our downstream research that we've done subsequently since then, you know, has really shown that a lot of our references and what we take our information to compare to, to verify what it is or to identify what it is, um, is actually contaminated and our reference genomes become very problematic to use. But anyway, you know, things that we've sort of seen so far that we think carry validity and weight are, um, you know, ancient individuals, um, at least Paleolithic individuals eating things like shellfish. Um, we've seen some um, individuals who are living in the sort of Mesolithic era, you know, just prior to agriculture are eating things like um, sort of wild sheep or, or you know, um, species similar to that. We've seen um, even some evidence, for example, for woolly rhinoceros, right? So some of these, you know, big megafauna that existed in the past. Um, so even the ranges of meat that you'd be eating would be much more diverse than, you know, what we'd be eating today, right? And I think it's not necessarily surprising to us. I think that if we had to have guessed without any information, we probably would have guessed that people were eating whatever they could get their hands on, right? You know, um, you're not going to be selective um, or probably as selective, you know, than you, you are if you just have, you know, ample choice for your food, right? You can go to the grocery store and just decide, oh, well, do I want beef or chicken tonight, right? Versus hey, do I have a huge amount of beef in front of me that I can get, you know, versus not getting anything else for a while. So, um, you know, those are, they're not necessarily surprising findings, but I think, I think that they are interesting to reflect on. I think what's more um, interesting to reflect on as well is also dietary sources for um, medical use, you know, and thinking about how people might have been using food as medicine in the past. Um, and, you know, we're, we're again, I think the jury's still out there, but um, it's certainly a question that we're interested in continuing to explore, you know, were people um, eating particular barks or were people eating particular berries, you know, not as, as sort of, um, not for quantity or not for, you know, necessarily substance, but because they may have helped treat, you know, a stomach ailment or, or treated pain in some way, right? Um, so we're really interested in pursuing a lot of those further, but I think those are probably some of the more surprising findings, you know, is, is that really true? And, and really like, let's dig into this further because, um, you know, it suggests that people have a, and even Neanderthals, you know, not just, not just homo sapiens, but even Neanderthals, right? Very ancient um, hominids have an understanding of, of medical practice in some way. Um, and that's, you know, that's really awesome. And it's, it's contributing to the conversation that's really reshaping how we think about Neanderthals and how we think about ancient hominids, you know, they're not sort of club dragging, fur wearing, grunting individuals, right? They're actually sort of very complex, um, intelligent, you know, um, <laughs> very, very awesome, you know, human creatures, right? That we would we would want to interact with and, and get to know. And in fact, you right. know, we know that 
their interbreeding, right? So um, with us in the past. So it, it is really reshaping how we, how we think about ancient humans. I wanted to ask this question earlier. Um, how exactly can you know from like the, um, the bacteria on the teeth exactly like what foods they were eating? Because you also mentioned um, some of like the medicinal uh, foods that they were eating, like bark or things like that. Um, is that all through dental calculus? So it is all in dental calculus, um, but we use the DNA directly from those food sources. And we also use DNA from microbes. So we kind of use a, a we use a two-prong approach. And so um, the first one is actually to go in and physically look for DNA that actually is from those food sources. So, you know, you can imagine like some woolly rhino still stuck between someone's teeth, right? Like that's mm -hmm. what we're going to go in and look for. Right. Um, but the other part of it is, are the microbes that we also find alongside of it, right? And your microbes um, in your mouth anyway, probably don't drastically change with each meal. They probably are much more consistent, um, at least in your mouth and in dental calculus, consistent across your life. I mean, you know, consistent for long periods of time, right? And so those may reflect sort of longer or larger dietary changes that a person, um, that a person had. And so we've been actually looking at the microbial um, sort of digestion, as it were, in your mouth, right? What do the microbes have the ability to eat and to digest? And can we take that information and infer dietary differences through time with that? Um, and it turns out it looks like you can. So, you know, some individuals have a lot more microbes, for example, that um, are associated with milk digestion in, in more recent populations. Whereas, you know, other people have microbes that, um, for example, don't carry as many carbohydrate metabolism genes. And so they're probably not eating as many carbs. And so they paint really broad pictures about our diet, um, but they do allow us to sort of dig into probably what people were eating um, by using microbes as a proxy for what the microbes were eating. Does that make sense? Got it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so is this something that's now being used? Because I guess like the question of what foods that humans evolved to eat is an important question and it can tell us some things, but would it be even more relevant to actually like get, you know, your own oral microbiome or your own gut microbiome and kind of test that and see what foods you are adapted to eat? Yeah, we, we have looked at that in people living today to say like, okay, what, what microbial functions do you have to digest food? Um, and most people that we've looked at have all lived in industrialized settings, but they're incredibly, um, omnivorous, right? So you've got all those microbes, you know, you've got all the genes to do all the, all the carbohydrates, you know, all the meats, all the nitrogen, um, all the milk, you know? And so um, it's really interesting because it seems like we've, you know, sort of um, continued to adapt and to, to collect all these microbes that are really good at, at, um, at least in healthy individuals, you know, at digesting a wide range of foods. And, and it matches really well with what people's diets are today, right? Which is a, you know, for us, a good indicator that what we're using might project well back in the past. Um, but it also says that maybe not everybody had all of those microbial functions in the past. Right. And then what does that mean? Right. What does that mean in the context of our health? And, um, right. you know, as far as, as how we interpret that data. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think would have to be like some of the biggest leaps in that kind of technology for us to actually, uh, regard it as something that's more valid? Um, gosh, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think what we should do in living populations is actually look at people who have, um, you know, very diverse diets that have not been influenced by industrialization, right? And look at their microbial functions. And so, you know, work with, um, for example, traditional communities that live in Australia or Brazil or Africa, like Tanzania, for example, you know, and, and try to understand, okay, what do those microbial functions reflect? And there's been a little bit of work done on this, right? Um, for example, we can see 
um, in the guts of the Hadza hunter-gatherers, right, that they have microbes that share genes for complex carbohydrate digestion. Um, again, there's some debate on that in the field, but I think that's the general sentiment at this stage. Um, so, you know, it does suggest that your microbes, you're going you're gonna to select or you're going to try to gather the microbes, right, that do a really good job at digesting the foods that you eat. Um, because those microbes are also eating those same foods, right? And some of those microbes even, you know, live on foods today, right? So there's um, a really beautiful story looking at Japanese individuals and, and showing that, you know, if you have Japanese heritage, you also have some microbes that are associated with seaweed digestion, you know, and you can find those microbes associated with seaweed today, but they also live in the guts of people um, in Japan today. And so, you know, again, it's an adaptation um, where you've sort of selected for, or, or, you know, incidentally, you know, gathered these microbes, which actually help you digest your food. But we can sort of, you know, potentially use that to trace back where these microbes are coming from in the environment, um, or what other sort of functions or adaptations, you know, they might have allowed. Yeah. So it, it seems to me what I'm understanding is that the changes or the differences in microbial diversity from, you know, population to population might be more so related to. Um, it might be more. Uh, adaptable, it might be more of like an adaptation to be able to extract as much nutrition from that food rather than like a marker of like health. Like for example, the Inuit population tends to eat more of the, you know, like the organ meats and more fatty foods and more fish and more meat. Whereas um, there are populations also that eat like almost entirely carbohydrates um, and their microbiome is going to be very, very different. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis, right? Like, we, we know that this diversity does shift according to diet. And a lot of that work is done by comparing um, people who live traditional lifestyles today to people who live industrialized lifestyles. In fact, we do see this drop in diversity if you um, are living an industrialized lifestyle. And even if you um, were living a more traditional life and you moved to an industrialized country, right, we also see that sort of drop in diversity. And so, so we know that there are some links there. Um, but I, I don't know that we could necessarily correlate like diversity with particular diets. It's going to be um, specific functions to do specific digestion, right? That are probably right. going to be more likely associated with those different diets. But um, but those you know shifts could very well underpin health or the propensity to develop certain diseases. Um, but we still need to do more research on that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, do you have any final thoughts on kind of trying to wrap up the question of what foods did humans evolve to eat? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really great question. Um, I, we're so far away from how we once evolved, right? I try to put my, myself in the shoes of ancestors that would have lived, you know, prior to agriculture or lived prior to industrialization. Um, and you would have just been so much more in tuned with the environment around you like indigenous populations are today, right? Um, most, you know, <laughs> folks of European descendants living in industrialized countries have lost that connection to their environment and lost that connection to country. And I think, um, you know, in doing so, that's really severed a lot of our, our ties and our understanding and our appreciation for traditional foods, right, and traditional resources. Um, and so really, I think that if we want to understand, you know, how, how people have evolved to eat today um, and we want to go back in the past and understand what we probably you know should have been should, should be eating but you know we live in a modern society today right so what we should be eating is probably modern food um, but uh, you know if we want to learn more about potentially how to have how to better diets or, or how to have something that was you know in bodies that may not have been pre-adapted to agriculture um, you know I think we need to work with people living traditional lifestyles today right and learn from them and and um, you know potentially understand more about what a traditional healthy diet looks like, right? Rather than industrialization. But um, 
I don't know, it's, it's, it's a frustrating question to answer though, because, you know, we have lived, if you're at least if you're of European descent, right, you have lived through this adaptation to agriculture, you are now adapted to eating carbs, like you are adapted to eating, you know, even industrialized foods, right, over the last hundred years, like you are adapted to that, and your microbiome has changed along with that, your microbiome has adapted with you to that, right, and so, you know, right now the foods we should be eating are probably things that don't include antimicrobials and things that don't, you know, include non-food sources, right, um, but they may still actually be agricultural based foods, right? They may be grains because that's what we've been adapted to over the last seven to 8,000 years, right? At least as Europeans have been largely practicing agriculture. So maybe even if we went back to a diet prior to, you know, agriculture, it might not be good for us, right? Because we're not adapted to that anymore, um, you know, but it could also be really good for us. Uh, and I think that's probably the better, <laughs> the better argument, right? right. Um, but we, we would have to expect our bodies to adapt along with us to sort of get back to that, um, you know, that previous iteration. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, again, one of the uh, overarching themes of most of the interviews that I've done with people who are interested in looking at the past to inform our present dietary choices is that we're adaptable, we're flexible. And we, you know, it's not so much, this is something that I really loved about the episode I did with Dr. Bill Schindler. He talked about you know, kind of like all the dogma that's out there about we should only be eating plant foods, or we should only be eating animal foods. Oh, wait, no, we should only be eating like fat, right? <laughs> we should only be doing keto. Yeah. Um, he thinks it's not so much the what, but it's the how, right? It's these methods of like ancestral food preparation, like fermenting, soaking, sprouting, like all these things that like, enhance the nutrition of the things that we were eating. And it was like you said, it's like, whatever was available to us is what we ate, and we made the most of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that point about thinking about preparation, right? Even even thinking in a Paleolithic perspective about cooking food, right? And how that may have changed, you know, our access to different nutrients in it, right? Like we adapted to eating cooked food. And in fact, you know, our microbes really adapted along with that. There's some really um, awesome research from Rachel, Car Rachel Carmody's lab looking at the effects of cooking your food on your microbiome, right? Um, you know, so, so, you know, we see that people, for example, who eat raw foods actually have a less diverse microbiome because there's antimicrobials in raw foods that you consume. And so, you know, there's, there are, um, you know, all these really unique adaptations, I think that we, we don't understand, but we are adaptable and we need to try to get the most nutrients out of our foods. And I think nutrients also includes, you know, good positive microbes, right? Anti-inflammatory microbes that are often associated with fermentation. Um, so yeah, it's, it's how do we, how do we take that environment, you know, grow the most nutritious foods and prepare it in a, you know, and, um, and work with it in a way that's, that's going to be the healthiest way possible. I think that's, that's probably the true story here because most right. of, most of the industrial foods that we eat today, you know, they're laden with fat, they're laden with sugar, they're laden with antimicrobials. I mean, those are, those are things that are completely independent of the agricultural revolution, right? They're completely independent of the industrial revolution. Like that's its own, that's its own beast, right? And so even if we were to go back 150 years, we'd probably still be better off than, than what we're eating today. Right. Um, and it's not that the foods are totally different, but it's how they're prepared and how they're presented and how they're stored, right? That's that's very different. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, yeah, I mean, that that to me is probably your, your story or to me, that's like the more interesting part, right? Is like industrialization um, and, you know, the green revolution over the last, you know, 50 to 80 years, right? That's probably what has completely destroyed our diet. <laughs> that's probably the problem. Yeah, 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 no, I agree. Um, where can people find out more about your work? Any links that you'd like me to share, social media links? 
Yeah, um, I direct the MicroArc Lab here at Penn State. And so we have our own website, the MicroArc website. You can also find me on Twitter um, at Ellis Weirich. Um, I'm also um, the director of SABRE, P-S-A-B-R-E, which is the new ancient DNA lab here at Penn State. Um, and you can find us on Twitter as well. Um, so yeah, I can send through a bunch of links um, to find us both on Twitter as well as find our website. Um, and you can also check us out at PSU Anth on Twitter as well. <laughs> awesome, Dr. Weirich, thank you very much for your time. Great, thanks very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.